Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Women in Confidence. My name is Vanessa and I'm the host. So if you're a regular podcast listener, whether to this show or to any other show, and obviously I thank you um, deeply if you're a Women in Confidence listener, and you've always thought, I quite like to be on a podcast, or I wonder if being a podcast guest would help me market my business or my course or my book or my idea, whatever it is, then you're in luck because I've just set up a boutique podcast booking agency called Boom to help women just like you get onto podcasts. I've got a website and all, all the stuff, uh, and you can find and check out all the details in the show notes. If you scroll to the bottom of the show notes, you'll find them there. I also have an Instagram page because what business these days doesn't have one. So go and check out to her Boom Podcast Agency. So on with this week's show, can a dog change the course of your life? Well, my guest this week is Tanya McCready and buying a dog did change her life in so many ways. And we're going to hear about this shortly. Tanya and her husband, Hank, run an incredibly successful business called Winter Dance Dog Sledding in the wilderness of Ontario. And over 20 years ago, they left their jobs and homes to set up a new life in dog sledding tours and races. They now have lots of dogs. And through their dogs, Tanya and Hank have learned about leadership, overcoming adversity and teamwork. And they now share their lessons in books, on TV, TEDx talks and on corporate stages. Unfortunately for me, on podcasts. Tanya, hello and welcome to Women in Confidence. Thank you for joining me today. Oh my gosh, it is my pleasure to be here, Vanessa. Thank you. You're like podcasting royalty in my mind because you've got so much to talk about and it's all to do with confidence and resilience and so there's lots to get on with. But my first question, Tanya, is what does having confidence mean to you? Brilliant question. You said you're going to ask that one. I was like, oh gosh. Um, you know, to me, having confidence is just knowing that you're on the path that you're supposed to be on. And I think my definition of confidence has certainly changed over the last 20 some years of our business adventure. But, you know, I used to be worried a lot more about what people thought because we do have a very unique business and a unique lifestyle. And now I'm to the point like, yes, of course, I want to serve people. And if I haven't served people and, you know, they're disappointed in something, you know, that bothers me and, and I want to fix it. But on the whole, I'm confident enough in what we've created, our business, our life, our family, that other people's opinions really don't impact me too much. And, and I don't say that from a place of arrogance. It's just, you know, we have confidence in what we've built and in the life we're living and how we serve. And so how people judge us really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. And that gives you a whole different sense of confidence when you walk on a stage or when you meet people who, you know, supposedly are huge superstars or something or, you know, make nine figures in income. It just it doesn't matter. It's just people as people as people. And to get to the point where your confidence allows you to meet other people and not feel this weird hierarchy that we have in our world is, is a pretty cool place to be. Yeah. And you have really have built something incredible there and you've built, built um, such a big brand in many ways. And I don't want that to sound really corporate but you know, you have built this incredible lifestyle for yourself and your family but also this very successful business as well which we're absolutely going to get into because the story is fascinating and I've got my notes just down here and I'm like oh where do I start where do I start but um <laughs> in your own words Tanya let, let's talk about where you did start because it wasn't running a dog sledding business uh doing TED talks writing books etc so do you want to say how it all started 
Yeah, gosh. I mean, my husband Hank and I grew up in farming country, um, just on an island actually between Canada and the U.S. and the St. Lawrence River. And both loved animals, both loved the wilderness. So that took me to environmental engineering and university. And I have an engineering degree. And I wanted to help the environment and make a difference in the world. And so I thought environmental law would be that path. I was wrong. And, uh, you know, I just found that corporate world wasn't where I was going to be happy. And so we made a really big decision. We had bought a, a husky pup shortly after we got married and fell in love with her and fell in love with dog sledding. And then we were like, you know, what if we turn this passion into a business? And I still remember the friend that said, why don't you do that? And Hank and I looked at each other and went, could we do that? And when we decided, it's like, that would be amazing. Everything changed. You know, all of a sudden we had a whole new path. So we quit our jobs, rented out our house. I mean, it took about a year for that process to kick in um, where we found a business loan and the property that was going to be perfect and where we wanted to move to. And then one night we moved out, rented our house and started this grand adventure in the wilderness. There was a lot more challenges than we ever could have dreamed. You know, I often say if you knew all the challenges you were going to have to go through, you would never start. But thankfully, you don't know them ahead of time. But, you know, we also could have never believed where it would take us. And it has been such a gift in more ways than we possibly have time to talk about. So, but it all started with a husky and not being happy with corporate world and, and deciding to take a chance on a dream on building a lifestyle and a business together. Going back to your husky pup, do you remember what it was called? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Colt was her name. And I mean, she changed the entire trajectory of our world. You know, we yeah. had never seen dog sledding before. I had grown up on a beef farm with my grandparents and, and parents and Hank was from a dairy farm down the road. So, you know, we read a book um, when we got Colt because she destroyed our apartment. She was everything husky that we had no idea we got ourselves into. So we got every book we could find on huskies. And one of those books was called Race Across Alaska. And it was wrote by the first woman to win the Iditarod. And we were like, we didn't even know what the Iditarod was. You know, we were so naive. And we fell in love with Alaska, the Iditarod, the history and the culture behind this amazing breed of dog. And then we saw the movie Iron Will. Good Disney movie, I think 1994, 95. And Hank was like, we've got to try dog sledding. And that was it. We started dog sledding, fell in love. And then that led to all of this. <clears throat> but you never know, right? You One say decision. so casually, we just started dog sledding. Um, how yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> like, what did you do? Where well, did you start? <laughs> we already had two dogs. So when we got Colt and we'd read all these books on huskies, we realized that huskies were pack animals. So we're like, okay, she needs a friend. So we got a second husky. It's so silly of us because the mayhem just doubled. But she was way happier. And then we saw the movie and uh, we got Husky three and four, brother and sister, Ice and Lucy. And I bought Hank a sled and harnesses for the dogs for Christmas. And I still have a picture somewhere of him hooking up the dogs, putting their harnesses on and attaching them to the sled in our living room on Christmas morning. And um, his sister owned a horse farm not very far away. So we went out there and hooked up the dogs and we did a really short run. And of course, the dog said, you know, Colt came from a pet store. Tundra came from a show kennel. 
Ice and Lucy, she, that lady used to dog sled, but she didn't anymore. She was an older lady. So like the dogs had never seen dog sledding and they just instinctively knew what to do. Because I remember I had a video camera. So this would have been, what would this have been, 96, 95. Um, so that's when America's Funniest Videos, the TV show was on. I don't know if you remember. And I was like, this is going to be a shoe-in because Hank doesn't know what he's doing. The dogs don't know what they're doing. And they went perfectly straight down this field turned around and came back. And I was like, how did they just do that? So that was, that was the start. And then we loved it so much. Four dogs is one team. So then Husky Five Storm joined our lives and then Midnight McKenzie. So we each had a team of dogs. And then now for over a decade, we've had 150 dogs. So Wow. Yeah, that's that's how it happened. It's incredible. And then you said that you left, we both left your jobs and you moved to a farm, which is up near Halliburton in Ontario. And I'm like, I don't know, many people, I don't know, including myself here as well, leaving a job, like a profession, something you'd spent time getting yourself educated with. You know, people are nervous about that. They'll either just never take that step because they're like, that's too big a deal for me. How did you know it was the right thing to do? Probably the question I've been asked the most often <clears throat> in 24 years. And um, I mean, when I think back on it now, I'm kind of amazed that we didn't have more fear because I think we probably should have in all honesty, but we really didn't. I mean, we had spent a year building a business plan, getting financing, um, you know, researching where we were moving as far as the tourism market and competition. Uh, we'd researched other companies. So in our minds, we had done enough homework we knew we could make this work. Now, again, that was really naive of us, but sometimes naivety can be a wonderful thing, right? So literally like, and I asked Hank this just the other day because somebody else had asked me that. And I'm like, do you remember being afraid? And he's like, no, like I just remember we were so excited because of this new adventure we were going on, this new lifestyle we were building, like there was no fear. Now, when we got here, I think I shared with you, Vanessa, things weren't as we planned. I mean, we ended up with no home because it wasn't built yet. Um, we lived our first winter in the dog kennel with the dogs. So that first fall, there was there was a lot of, oh my gosh, like what have we done? Um, I was eight months pregnant when we made this move with our first child. So that fall was tough. I, I won't lie. It was, it was really tough. But the actual decision to quit our jobs and rent out our home and move to the wilderness and start this business it was just like it felt so aligned with everything we loved in life and we did our homework so that we knew we could make it work it was just a no-brainer at that point mm. and it's beautiful that you could do it together as well and you were sort of both supporting each other throughout that process particularly when you're pregnant and um having to live with the dogs how many dogs did you have then when you first bought your property up in Halliburton yeah, so when we the night we moved, we had seven huskies that uh, that were our babies, and they moved with us, and three cats. And then, literally, in the next month, we had gone out, you know, several months before that, and and found other huskies because obviously we needed more than seven for a business. Um, so we went from seven to forty-two that first fall, and yeah, I mean, they were all supposed to come here in September, and then like we had no place to put them. We had no kennel, we had no house because everything had ran behind. So, you know, we built, and that's why we built the kennel first, because we had to have a place for the dogs. So we built that and, you know, the more dogs came and, and it was 42 dogs that we moved in with that winter. And, you know, everyone's like, you lived in a dog kennel. I'm like, well, 
dogs are really spoiled. <laughs> they have radiant heat through their floor. There's a grooming room with a tub and a shower, a full kitchen. So uh, when we moved from that dilapidated motorhome to the kennel, I still remember the day. I was like, this is amazing. I have heat. I have hot water. I have electricity. Like this is going to have, I have a bathtub. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, but you do what you got to do, right? And a year after we moved here, we finally moved into our, our log home where we are today still. So, And then at what point did you start having visitors and coming doing dog sledding tours? You set it all up, you moved in with the dogs initially, but then at what point did you start actually offering the tours? It was that first winter we were here. So, um, and that was another part of the problem because the house was was taking so much of our time that we're like, we can't, I mean, that was early November and we still didn't have a roof on. And we're like, mm. we have to start dog sledding. Like we have to start making money. So by deciding to move into the kennel, we just put the house on hold for the winter. And that allowed us to focus on our business. And that first winter, we got to welcome 300 guests. Um, you know, it's a far cry now. We welcome on average about 3,000 a winter from literally all over the world. But you know, to us, those first 300 were proof because everyone thought we were crazy. I mean, our, our families, our friends, like they could not understand how we had walked away from two great jobs, a lovely home to move to the middle of nowhere with no guarantees in their mind. Um, so to us, those 300 people just validated that we can make this work. You know, it might take longer than we thought, but we can make this work. But 300 is an impressive start. You know, that is really impressive. It is a tourism area. So like there are resorts and hotels here. So, you know, they were happy to send us their customers. Um, you know, that was one lesson I learned because as I went to all these places to tell them we were opening and, you know, here's our brochures and, and they would be like, oh, we'll be happy to send our customers. There was one business owner who didn't see it that way. He saw it. Now he didn't tell me this for two years, but he said, when you walked in my door, he said, I went, Okay, I'm happy to send them my customers this year, but he said they're going to be sending me their customers for years because this is such a unique thing that people are going to decide to dog sled, decide to come with them and then say, where can I stay? And indeed, you know, 23 years later, even though it's changed ownership, um, that inn still receives more of our guests than anyone else. Because indeed, when they come from all over the world, the first thing they say after they book is where can we stay? And do you have accommodation on site? Um, we have a single cottage that we rent out to families, but other than that, we don't. So, you know, we're happy to refer our guests to B&Bs or inns or motels that are in the area. And then you said at your dog sledding, 300 to 3,000 people. When did things like, I'm going to write a book, come into it and then go into speaking and telling people about this and really helping corporate teams and organizations really focus on team building and overcoming challenges? How did that, how did the business evolve? And I guess we, how, how did you drive all that? That's amazing. Yeah, it was kind of two part. I mean, Hank had also decided he wanted to run the Iditarod when we made this big, crazy move. That was part of the goal too, the big thousand mile race in Alaska. And it took us 10 years to get there. So 2010, we ran our first Iditarod and Hank didn't get to finish that race. He got 700 miles in and his race ended. And it was a really hard time you know, to chase a dream for that long and then have it pulled away, it, it put him mental health wise in a really bad spot because he felt he had failed me and, and our children and our dogs and our small town that had helped raise money. And our staff had built a Facebook page that year for the race and, and people were following from all over the world. And he felt he just he failed on a very public stage. 
And so the first book almost was a therapeutic writing because, of course, in the world of social media, it was pretty new at that point. But it's so easy to say such horrible things about people, right, without knowing anything. And people had said so many horrible things about him and our dogs. And the book was kind of our way to share our story. And I mean, obviously, the whole book is not, you know, about the ending and, and the bad part of the story. I mean, because it was an amazing adventure, you know, preparing for that race and all the qualifying races and, and the race itself was incredible. So we got to share all that. <clears throat> and that was our first book. And I don't know that I thought I would do another one because writing a book is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and and our children were little then. So they were, would have been, let's see, uh, two to 10 at that point when I wrote the first one. So then Hank ran his second thousand mile race, finished that one. And a senior VP of human resources for a huge health company in Canada ended up being told by one of her suppliers, you've got to follow this guy from Ontario. He's running this crazy race. And so she got addicted to following the race. And the next fall, she called us and said, would you come and do a presentation to our executive team? And I was like, "Uh, yeah, no, we don't do that. And she was like, well, she goes, I'd really like you to think about it. Because she said, I think everything you do would be just exactly what we do in a corporation. It's a very different way of looking at it, but the principles are the same. So finally, to get her off the phone, I said, okay, I'll ask Hank, but like, I don't think there's any way this is going to happen. And I asked him and he's like, you know, expletive, no. (laughs) So I called her back and said, you know, thank you. We're really honored, but I'm sorry, it's not going to work. Well, she's, I can see why she had the job she had because she was very persistent. So she said, you know, we pay really, really well. And she gave me the figure and the figure would pay for his next thousand mile race, his entry fee. So I was like, so I went back to Hank and I'm like, okay, it will pay for your entry fee. And he's like, shit. He's like, okay, we'll do it once, one time only. So we did it and literally we walked off the stage and she's like, okay, I want you to come back in a month and present the exact same thing again to another part of our team. And Hank's looking at me like, what just happened? Um, so that was the start of our speaking, but that, I mean, it didn't go much further because we really didn't promote it because it wasn't something that we felt, you know, really comfortable doing. And then COVID hit and Canada, like Australia was very, you know, firm in their lockdowns. And so we lost three quarters of a winter's income because we were in lockdowns and we went from a 20 year stable business to literally how are we going to feed our dogs for the next eight months? How are we going to pay our debts for the next eight months? And so we got creative. It's like, well, we could write the second book people have been asking about. And and that was the one that became the international bestseller. And then we started leaning into speaking because people were still hiring virtual presentations. And out of just trying to find a way to survive, you know, it's opened up this whole new world of, you know, now we've spoke to two Fortune 20 companies, which, you know, still I have a hard time believing. Ted taught like it just it's crazy the opportunities that have come but it's because of the dogs because I share the stories of our dogs and the lessons they've taught us around teamwork and leadership and adversity and and they touch people's hearts you know even without the dogs being there they still touch people's hearts so what have the dogs taught you personally oh they've taught me so much I mean huskies I think all dogs but huskies maybe even more so have so much joy and passion and energy every single day, every single moment. And you cannot walk into our kennel in a bad mood and stay in a bad mood for more than two minutes. It's just impossible. They've taught me about energy. 
how our energy impacts and affects everyone around us. With dogs, we see it so quickly, or horses, I mean, all animals. But I believe it's the same with people. We just don't talk about it and we don't acknowledge it as much. I've watched, I mean, I, I often say Hank can be a thousand miles away from me and I can be following the GPS tracker on his sled. And I will know what his mindset is based on knowing the weather and the train, because if that team is moving really slow, I know his mindset is off. He's tired. He's doubting. <clears throat> he's beating himself up. And the dogs manifest it literally immediately in how they run. If that dog team is flying, I know he's on top of the world and they feed off his energy. So they've taught us about energy. They've taught us about resilience. They've taught us, you know, about leadership, what the heart of a leader truly means. Probably the most important lessons in life we've learned from our dogs and our adventures with them. Well, tell me then about leadership in the the pack and how have you taken what you've learned through watching them to, I guess, how you then lead your business? Yeah, I mean, just like people, all leaders and the dogs are different. You know, they all have their different personalities, their different leadership styles. And, and people kind of look at us when we say that, but it's like, no, like truly they do. Like every single one of our great leaders has been totally different, but yet they have all been great leaders, you know? So I think so many times leaders expect that they have to fit into this mold. You know, they have to be this leader that they look up to or this leader that they look up to. And it's like, no, like every person that wants to be a leader can be a leader by being true to themselves. And so as you watch those dogs lead, you see what their strengths are and their weaknesses are. And we try to model that ourselves. You know, what works for us by being authentic to who we are, leading in the way that feels right for us. So our business, I mean, you know, raising four kids, having staff, customers, and the kennel is at the house. So, I mean, everything is all mingled and meshed up. And when the kids were small, we used to be like, okay, like, how do we create balance? Like, how do we separate the business and home and and we just struggled with it for so long. And finally, we just gave up. We're like, you know what? We're never going to separate it, nor do we ever want to separate it. Because when our kids were younger, our guides were all like in their 20s to 30s. And our kids would look at the guides like they're big brothers and sisters. I mean, they were like, awesome. <laughs> and the guides would be like big brothers and sisters to the kids and roughhouse with them and play with them. And we're like, how is that a bad thing? You know? And the kids were part of the business. Um, I mean, they would help look after the dogs, but they would go to the trail with us and meet the customers. And so finally, when we stopped trying to find this division and, and lead a business and then lead a family and just find ways to intermingle it, but, you know, obviously have family time and life got so much easier because half the problem is finding the struggle and thinking you have to find this balance when you're just like, you know what? We love our life the way it is. Maybe other people don't understand and that's just fine. This works for us and our family. So um, energy, the dogs have taught us, obviously, I talked about energy, but the energy we bring to our team, to our customers, and just passion, you know, because they're, if you meet a Siberian Husky, if you see anything in them, it is passion. Every second of the day, they have passion. They have passion to run every single time they run. And if you can give that kind of passion to your customers, to your family, to your team, it's amazing how your culture evolves without you even necessarily trying to evolve it. Because we all feed off of passion and energy. And how do you preserve your energy? Because you've got a business, which is summer as well as just winter. You've got your um, maple syrup company as well, or a part of your business. You know, you've got your speaking, you've got a whole lot of activity. How do you preserve your energy? 
Yeah, when the kids were young, it was hard. Um, and, and I don't know that I've met a business owner with a young family that isn't like, it's just hard, right? Like you, if you want to deal with it, you've got to be up early and quiet in time and, and doing your emails and your phone calls before the house wakes up. And so, so there were years that, that it was hard and, and I was tired a lot of the time. But when you love what you do, that almost fuels you. And when you know you're touching people's lives, that also fuels you. The emails, I mean, now it's all TripAdvisor and Google reviews and stuff. But, you know, before all that, we used to get emails and, and I would print them out every morning and I would read them because they helped me re-energize for the day. And they would be from customers from the day or the week before about, you know, how we made their trip to Canada or how we created a memory that their family will treasure forever. And I would print them out and take them to the front of the kennel door where our staff came in every morning. And I could watch from the house every morning when they got there and they would stop every morning and read that feedback. And that's how we would start the day, knowing how we touched the people that were with us the day before. So a lot of times the people that you serve can inspire you back, right? It's just, it truly is a mutual exchange. But my other go-to is, is the wilderness, which I'm blessed to live in the middle of. If I need to recharge, I just need to walk out of my door. I need to leave my phone where it is and just go for a walk. Um, because just going for a walk and allowing my head to clear, to meditate, to read, journal, those are my go-tos. And sometimes it just takes five minutes. And it's amazing what five minutes can do, even in a crazy day. And how much land do you have now? Yeah, when we moved here, um, we bought 40, 46 acres that we started with. And then we've added another 40 acres to this block. And then eight years ago, we, we had leased land for our tours for a long time because you need a large chunk of land for a dog sled tour. Um, but eight years ago, we purchased, I guess it's about 200 acres. And that's been, you know, it was the one of the biggest challenges of my life. That deer deal took a year and a half to put together. Um, but it's also been one of the greatest blessings to have that much wilderness that we are the guardians of. And, you know, hopefully will be maintained and, and preserved for generations to come. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, that guardianship of a piece of land. How does it get maintained? Because there's a real environmental responsibility with having land in such a sort of beautiful place, part of the world. How do you maintain it? And how do you know? Because that's a new thing. I mean, I suppose you did your degree and, you know, your business was around environmental energy. But like that's is that a world that you were even familiar with? Not really. And certainly, I mean, while it had been a dream years ago to own a large chunk of land for a wildlife preserve or, you know, something similar, I don't think either Hank or I ever believed it would be possible. So, yeah, it was very, you know, when we saw the land and we're shown it and we're like, oh, my gosh, like, that's amazing. There's no way we can do this. So, yeah, it was it was a big, I don't want to say surprise because we did plan, but but it also was unexpected to some extent. But that said, we had spent, you know, the last 15, 16 years of our lives leasing land from other large landowners and seeing how they managed their lands and had met many people in our area that, you know, did manage large pieces of land. So I don't think it was a big shock for us once we actually got it, what we would do with it, because, you know, logging is a big thing where we are. And while we're certainly not against logging because we all use lumber, we knew it wasn't the answer for our property because, Logging does make a short-term mess, obviously, with all the crowns of the trees that come down. And and it wasn't, A, what our customers would want to see going through a wilderness area. And 
it also is done in the winter in Canada. So we're like, we can't have like logging trucks and like these two just are not going to mix. And that's how maple syrup entered because we're like, okay, so if we're not going to log to maintain the property, what can we do? And my family's made maple syrup since like the 1930s. <laughs> so it's like, well, we do have a lot of maple trees and a lot of land. So we, we put in the maple syrup operation. And then Ontario has something called managed forest programs where um, you have a, a registered um, person who specializes in forestry and they come out and they work with you as far as, you know, what your goals are for the property. And, and then you write a 10 year plan based on your goals and good stewardship. And so that's, you know, we're, we're in our second plan now. So, you know, our goal is just to maintain it basically as it is um, for the wildlife that are on it. So we really don't do a whole lot other than try to improve habitat. So like we had a, a we have numerous beaver ponds on our property. And for some reason, whatever happened to the beavers, they decided to move. I don't know, but a dam broke this spring and this huge pond is now drained. And so we have lots of fish in it and frogs and turtles. And we're like watching it dry up and we're like, we're going to lose like all these animals. So Hank and the boys are, are working. We're not beavers, but, you know, we can dam a little bit. So at least we've got six inches of water until the beavers move back in and do their job. But, uh, you know, we'll protect that habitat through the summer. So, yeah, we just try to maintain it as, as pristine and pure as it was, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Sounds idyllic. I live in a city, so like you're talking, it's like, oh my gosh. So I come with my family up to up to your dog sledding tour up in um, Halliburton. Talk me through what I would get, what I'd experience. Yeah, just talk me through a day with you. Yeah, I mean, people often say, do we prepare people before they get here? And and we try, you know, we'd, we'd certainly tell you what to wear to be comfortable and, and how to get here and, you know, where to stay and all these great things. But uh, the experience of dog sledding is something that's really hard to explain other than the mechanics. You know, you're, we're going to teach you how to do it. Um, we're going to introduce you to the five dogs that are going to pull your sled. And then off you go with the guide. So a guide is on their own sled. And then two people are on each sled behind the guide up, up to four sleds. And so one of you is driving the sled. So standing at the back, like you picture in Hollywood movies, and one sitting in the sled. And then, you know, people take turns switching between riding and driving. And we go out into our 2000 acres, which once you leave trailhead, I mean, is just wilderness and forests and lakes and, and marshes. But, uh, you know, it's the dogs that are the magic. Everybody's like, we want to come in the perfect weather. And of course, everyone does. But I'm like, the snowfall really doesn't matter like if there's six inches or six feet, because it's the dogs that you're going to remember, not how much snow there was, because they all have their own personalities. They all love, they all love people. People are always like, can we pet the dogs? Because, you know, they are working animals. And we're always like, they would be offended if you did not pet them. They would be like, excuse me, <laughs> you're not giving me attention. Um, but it is a team sport. So whoever is driving that sled, you know, it, it is an active sport because you're helping dogs, right? You're helping your team. So the person on the back is, you know, pushing up hills or breaking, going down hills, steering the sled. So it, it is a very active adventure. But I mean, you don't have to be a marathon runner, but yes, you are part of a team for sure. Amazing. I've what I've seen your Instagram page, your Instagram page, and you know, I've seen a lot of your visitors or guests with the dogs and just like kisses and hugs. And I mean, this, it just looks incredible. So at the moment you must be in summer. I take it there's no snow at all at the moment. 
snow or, or snow. Let's see, we've been in no snow for about a month, although we did freeze last night, which is we were up to like, you know, almost 25. And then which is spring in Canada, you have snow one day and, you know, 30 degrees the next. But um, so, yeah, it's kind of that shoulder season now where it's it's kind of warm, but but not summer yet. So what, how do you keep yourself busy over the summer? Yeah, so we say we have two seasons. We have dog sledding season, or we have winter, and then we have getting ready for winter because there's just so much preparation. Like it takes a month to split all the wood that we use for, you know, heating our trailhead cabin and boiling maple syrup and keeping the dogs warm. And um, so the guys are just finishing up wood now. So we go from dog sledding to maple syrup to wood. <laughs> and, and then the next couple months is usually all the construction projects, whether we're building new trails or fixing trails or um you know the kennel needs a new roof or new fences there's there's always you know construction projects and then by september we start training the dogs again so then we're already getting ready for winter and marketing and bookings usual actually bookings are coming in now already for next winter so um every year it seems to get actually australia was our first booking so they booked last week for uh, yeah for for next winter um and then speaking our our speaking season is usually you know april through november as well so Mm. And it's you who does all the speaking. You do all the events. Yeah, well, Hank did the first few with me. We we shared a stage. He does not enjoy it. Um, So now I do the speaking. He always comes with me. uh, And he loves talking to people afterwards and meeting people. But yeah, being on the stage is not his thing. So so yeah, so I, I do the stage part. And then everybody gets to meet him afterwards. And do you love it? Do you like the speaking, the speaking part? I really do. Um, I mean, we started out doing it in COVID because it's like, okay, it's an answer. It's a solution. I can do it. But as we started sharing more and more of our stories around our dogs and I saw how it impacted people. And I mean, it's rare that somebody doesn't come up after a talk and say, like, you had me in tears. And it's not because the stories are bad or they're sad. It's just they're so powerful. So when you can move people that way or people come up and say like, wow, I've been thinking about doing this for five or 10 years, I'm, I'm going to go do it. Then you almost feel obligated. It's like, well, who else needs this story to pursue what they're meant to pursue? And so, yeah, I, I love serving. I love, you know, we can only welcome 3000 people a winter and, and that's a drop in the bucket to the world, obviously. And there's many people who, you know, could never come dog sledding in Canada. So to get to share our dogs and our lifestyle with people in a different way and reach a larger audience. Um, I don't know if the the show Yellowstone, is it a big thing in Australia? Oh my God, I love it. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. I mean, the story's a little bit, <laughs> you know, but the, yeah, it's the environment, the, the photography is incredible. It is stunning. And Hank and I watch it and it maybe hits us a little bit differently because we, I mean, thankfully we don't have, you know, developers trying to bomb us or anything like that, but, you know, from activism to people not understanding our lifestyle and feeling like we're a relic in today's world, that is very much what we do um, with a large piece of land that we're trying to protect. You know, certainly it's not the Dutton's 100,000 acres, but I think the Yellowstone Ranch they film on is about the same size as our property. You know, there's times you feel like the world just doesn't understand what you do and why you do it. So to get to stand on stage and let people into our world that way and feel our passion and why we do what we do and how incredible these animals are, um, it's, it's definitely something I love. When we last spoke, Tanya, you said something really interesting. So I wrote it down. You said 
Well, first of all, you said connect with your vision. I think I must have asked, you know, why do you keep doing what you're doing? Or how did you carry on when things were tough, you know, COVID, you know, nowhere to live? And you said connect with your vision. Can you remember telling me that and perhaps Absolutely. explain why you think that to be true? Yeah, and I, I think it's true on many different levels. I mean, you know, again, 20 years past when we quit our jobs, people will come up to me and say, how did you walk away from your purpose and the path that you were on to start an entirely different purpose and path? And my answer is I didn't. I changed the vehicle that I was in, but I did not change my purpose and my path. My purpose and the path was always the environment, was always wildlife. And I thought that was going to be environmental law, but it turns out it's dog sledding and welcoming people from all over the world to pristine wilderness to show them what it's like to not have buildings, to not have cities and roads, and to hopefully have them leave with an appreciation for the intrinsic value of the wilderness, to actually be able to protect the animals and the wildlife that are on our property. So I don't believe my vision changed at all. It's just how I got here changed. But having a vision of where you want to go, even though you might not see it completely clear, because Hank and I certainly never saw where we are now. My gosh, that wasn't even close to in the vision 20 years ago. But being able to see it enough that it excites you, that can sustain you through the tough times. It sustained us through that first fall. It sustained us. We ended up in a lawsuit over land rights. That was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I mean, that put us in huge uncertainty and fear for three years and, and vision and got us through that, um, got us through COVID. But if you can't reconnect with your why and your vision, it gets really hard to see it forward. And one thing I know about fear and been in it enough, we've seen the pattern. So now we can get out of it a lot faster is when you're in fear, you're frozen in your mobile. You can't do anything. You can't be creative. You can't think your way out of it because fear just literally freezes you. So being even if you can't see the vision, having someone that can help you. Hank and I were are each other's support that first year, but also in every tough time. Times that I've been like, it's like how are we going to do this? He would help me reconnect. Times that he would be like, I can't see through this. I would help him reconnect. Because when your why is big enough and the light is bright enough, you'll climb any mountain. You'll do anything if you believe you can get to that place. It's going to be everything that you do. So... I like to wrap my episodes up with some quick fire questions. It's a bit of a new thing, but I'm really enjoying doing it because I think we have to all evolve slightly. So I'm just going to ask some questions off the top of my head that I'm just curious about. So I can see a book in the background. So it's Journey um, of a Thousand Miles. But what's the one book yes. you've read that's been really not life changing because that's a bit huge statement, but what's made a real impact on your life? What one book? Oh, one I'm a reader, so that's tough, Vanessa. <laughs> um, my gosh. I mean, Race Across Alaska literally did change your lives. That's the book that introduced us to the Iditarod, to, you know, Alaska. And yeah, so that's huge. Um, but if I'm thinking of a personal development book, I'm going to have to give you a couple. Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Break a few <laughs> <Okay>. rules. <laughs> okay. Magic Thinking Big was the first personal development book I read, and it blew my mind because I never knew there were books out there like that. I never knew people thought like that. It was just like, um, Think and Grow Rich. Absolutely love that book. Um, greatest Salesman in the World. That book I read numerous times a year. Small Read. I don't know if you've read that one by, by Og Mandino. But yeah, all of those books have been truly life-changing in, in many different ways. 
Great. And I'll put the links to those in the show notes. All right. My next question. And I really like this, but it starts weird. If you're baking a confidence cake, what are the three ingredients that you would put into it? Hmm. That's a great question. Three ingredients. Belief in yourself would be one of the absolute important ingredients. Ingredients. Um, integrity would be another one. And the last, aiming on two, um, would have to be purpose. I don't believe you can have confidence unless you have a purpose. Last question. What's next for Winter Dance? Yeah, so much. I mean, it's crazy. 24 years in and we feel like we're just getting started, you know. Um, dog sledding will always be the core of what we do because it's, it's the backbone of everything. But besides that, uh, speaking, you know, while it was something to sustain us, and now I see it actually growing bigger than our dog sledding business. So traveling and speaking is, you know, certainly the one thing I see in the next year. Because we, we have traveled some, but not outside of North America to speak. So I'm excited to get my husband across the ocean. Um, so that is huge. Um, there's two more books in the future for the next year. I've started the third one, which is Hank's Third Race. But there's another book that I know is out of our presentations and our lessons from our dogs. Um, so I'm just starting to work on a book proposal and, and looking for a publishing deal for that one. And then I keep getting told we should start a podcast, Vanessa. So, you know, I'll have to tap <laughs> your brains on that. But um, I am thinking about starting a podcast too. Oh, you'd be amazing. Honestly, podcasting has changed my life. You know, dog, a dog might have changed yours, but a microphone changed mine. <laughs> so Tanya, how can people find you? Absolutely. So they can find us um, either tanyamccrady.com or winterdance.com and, and they're all interconnected. And then from there, our socials are all there and speaking and everything. Um, and I will say one one last thing on the horizon too is, I mean, our dogs are our babies. They're with us for life. And unfortunately, we see a lot of cancer. And every year we seem to see more. So last year we hired a researcher for four months to comb the world for what she could find on preventing cancer in dogs or, you know, mitigating it. And so all the research she came up with, um, it just, you know, we were so naive. We're like, four months, you know, that should give us lots of time. Well, it, it opened more questions than it solved. So where we see all of that going is um, a nonprofit. We want to build a dog food Food, or like a dog food that is based on the research we found that will help our dogs and with their health and longevity and hopefully other dogs as well. And then just keep, keep funding that research to try to make a difference in dogs' lives because, you know, we've moved our lifespan from 12 to 14 to 14 to 16, but it's, it's never long enough. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a really question. How many dogs have you got? I should have asked. I've been wanting to ask that throughout the whole of this episode and I'm thinking when's the right time, <laughs> but how many have you got now? Let's see. We just adopted four more. Um, so I think that puts us at 152 right now. Oh, wow. So I wrote usually... down 100 plus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're usually 150 to 160. So I think with the puppies and, and the four old guys we just adopted, I think we're at 152 now. So Wow. <laughs> that's a, I've got one dog and that's a handful, but oh, I take my hat off to you. Well, listen, Tanya, it has been incredible and I probably could well, I know I've got a hundred more questions to ask you, but we're sort of bound by time. But thank you so much for being on the show. It's been amazing to meet you. My pleasure. And I'll also send you a link, Vanessa, so people can download a free copy of our first book, A Ditter Our Dream or Two, if they would like. So, Oh, that's really kind of you. Thank you so much. Welcome. <laughs>